Have you ever uh, given a gift to someone and just kind of by their reaction, they say, oh, they appear to have been very happy to receive the gift, but when they take it home, you just wonder whether they'll ever use it. They might re-gift it, or they might take it back for redemption at the retail store, or, um, you know, they might just put it in a trunk and forget about it. And here you went to quite a bit of diligence and time and expense to obtain this special item for them, which to you was very valuable, but it wasn't very valuable to them. Well, I just wonder how often that kind of response Jesus meets with the gift of his love and his sacrifice for the death of the sinners on the cross. I wonder if that might be the case with many people. Uh, You know, it just kind of goes over their head, or for some reason, they just don't comprehend, they don't appreciate what Jesus has done for them. And so, therefore, it becomes our responsibility, doesn't it, to announce the good news, to help them to see... um, how Jesus has gone to the extreme in paying the wages of our sin, which was an eternal death upon the cross. Help them to appreciate from their heart so that they can do what their mother taught them whenever someone gives them something, and that is to at least say thank you. You know, Mama taught me to say that. (laughs) And I hope that comes from our hearts when we realize what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, Lord, because it is that love that renovates, that that, that is genuine faith that, by which Jesus is able to uh, help us to be partakers of a di- his divine nature and to write his law upon our hearts and upon our minds. I don't think that we can study the topic of uh, forgiveness of our sins and righteousness by faith too much uh, because uh, Ellen White, the servant of the Lord, said that there's not one in a hundred that really understands righteousness by faith. Have you ever read that statement? There's not one in a hundred. I'll have to bring that statement and read it to you. I've had it in some of my notes in the past. Well, if that was the case in her day, I wonder, it probably is true today, isn't it? That probably not one in a hundred really understands righteousness by faith today. And so it behooves us to continually study this wonderful topic. There are those who would like to drive a wedge between Ellen White and the clear concepts of righteousness by faith that the Lord has revealed to us. Uh, Trying to drive a wedge between Ellen White and the words of Scripture uh, is really a distortion of her gift of inspiration without realizing that sincere people can and so doing, choke out the third angel's message in the process. The problem comes when they insist that the good news can't be as good as the messengers said it is when God gave it to us as a people. Good news meaning that Christ bore the condemnation of the sin of all men and women and children, setting them legally free from condemnation, They insist that when Christ died on the cross, he could not have done something for the whole world, for all men. He could not justify all men. The best that Jesus could do was to make a provision whereby justification might come upon those 
who first do something to activate it. They sincerely fear that maybe this wonderful message of righteousness by faith will lead to a heresy which is called universalism, which is the idea, and it's certainly false, that everybody's going to be saved in the end. Or that emphasizing the legal justification of all humanity is going to lead to laxness of obedience to the law of God. Actually, in reality, there is no other way to establish the Ten Commandments and the law of God than a true understanding of legal justification. The 1888 view of justification by faith and that of uh, Arminian theology, which seems to prevail, is as different as night and day. But there's no other way. Briefly stated, the 1888 view says that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross accomplished for all men, the whole world, a legal justification and this is the reason why all men can enjoy the present gift of life. If we had to bear right now the full burden of condemnation that's due to us for our sin, we would drop dead right now. Whether or not we know and confess Christ, they already, saint or sinner, we owe everything to Jesus. For he already has taken our sins upon himself and died for it and given to us our present life instead. So writing about this uh, idea, Ellen White obviously had this in her mind. You know the book Desire of Ages? How many of you like the book Desire of Ages? It's a wonderful book, isn't it? I'm reading it well, good for you. Well, there's nothing but good news in the book, and the book was written after 1888 when these themes of righteousness by faith had a time to settle into Ellen White's mind, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she wrote that book. And you have wonderful gems in there. Here's one on page 660. To the death of Christ we owe even this earthly life. Well, it's everybody, isn't it? Whether you believe on him or don't believe on him. The bread we eat, she says, is the purchase of his broken body. So anybody who eats bread can attribute that and thank, be thankful that he died for them on the cross. The water we drink is bought by his spilled blood. Never one, now here it is, saint or sinner, Believer or unbeliever eats his daily food, but he is nourished by the body and the blood of Christ. The cross of Christ, Calvary, is stamped on every loaf. It is reflected in every water spring. Well, it's true then that all men owe everything to Christ because the Father imputed their trespasses unto him as he was hanging upon the cross. No sinner has ever yet borne the full burden of his true guilt. By the grace of God, Christ has already tasted death for every man, Hebrews says, chapter 2, verse 9. That's why every man can live here and now, whether or not he believes. 
So when the sinner hears this wonderful good news of salvation and appreciates it, he believes this gospel, this is an individual now who is experiencing justification by faith. Before it was a legal gift that justified their existence. It's called justification of life. Temporary life that God has given to everyone. But now they hear this good news and faith is aroused and created by the Holy Spirit in their hearts and that's the experience of justification by faith. And that is a change of heart which uh, makes an individual, as Ellen White saw it, obedient to all of the commandments of God. So instead of weakening obedience to the law of God, the truth of justification is the only way to obey the law because appreciating this gift of pardon, this wonderful gift of love, motivates true obedience see, to all the commandments of God. Well, there's an opposite view that denies this. It says that justification by faith is itself only a legal declaration of acquittal. So then when a sinner accepts Christ, what he's really doing by his faith is activating a heavenly process which then proclaims the legal sentence that Christ now takes upon himself, the sinner's condemnation. But, says this view, the sinner is not and never will be truly just until the resurrection or until translation at the coming of Christ. So any change of heart takes place not in justification by faith, but in an afterwork, which is known as sanctification. And because sanctification is never complete in this life, the believer is doomed no matter, never to become fully obedient to the law of God. Well, according to this view, true obedience always remains a legal assumption a substitution in Christ, never a reality in personal life. And, and currently, this is a view that is widely upheld. But there's a problem with this uh, so-called view. It is vulnerable if it does not recognize the greater light of the 1888 message. Ellen White said that we must have that light if the Adventist message is to become complete. The uh, view that is so popular could never have made effective headway among us if historic Adventism for the past century had understood and accepted the 1888 view. And this is evident for the following reasons. Number one, first of all, justification is a term that no one can honestly deny has a legal meaning the sinner has transgressed the law of God and must suffer the consequence of condemnation of death. Therefore, for him to be covered so he can live, even for a moment, that requires a legal justification. Uh, otherwise, uh, Satan would cry to high heaven, these are sinners, God, you must destroy them, just as you pronounced that sentence back to Adam so long ago that if he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day he would surely what? Well, he didn't die, did he? And the reason he didn't die is because of this legal justification. That's why everyone lives. 
because Jesus died for them upon the cross. Otherwise, Satan would say, unfair. Sinners must die. So justification is definitely legal. Well, now the question of questions is, um, when does this take place? Justification by faith. The Reformation view and the historic view both agree on a superficial answer that justification, it is said, does not take place until the sinner believes on Christ and accepts Christ. But if a legal justification takes place only when the sinner accepts Christ, justification by faith has to be only a legal acquittal. One moment the sinner supposedly bears the total guilt of all of his sins, and the next after he accepts Christ, his legal liability is suddenly gone, and he is considered totally just. And this uh, historic position doesn't realize that his position has played right into the hands of uh, so-called Arminian theology. The reason is that both views are still logically mired in the essence of legalism because salvation is due to the sinner's initiative. Justification is due to the sinner's initiative. If you believe and accept the provision that Jesus died for your sins on the cross, then you, then you have the legal declaration of justification by faith. But it's all predicated on what? Faith. The sinner's faith. And that's a form of legalism because faith becomes a, um, a work that must be performed in order to obtain this justification. He's done something, performed a work, which activates his legal justification. His very decision to accept Christ starts the heavenly machinery, which so far as he is concerned has stood idle until this moment. And his justification is therefore the consequence of his own initiative. Paul says no to that. He says in Galatians 2, verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness, and the Greek there is justification, come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If justification comes by any human initiative, says Paul, then we frustrate grace and Christ is dead in vain. Failure to embrace the true view negates true faith and thus true obedience, which is sanctification as well. According to the Bible and Ellen White's writings, justification comes not at man's initiative, but at God's initiative, not man's. When, when the Savior hung on his cross, the text tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And the word is not a promise of a provisional maybe or perhaps that is contingent upon the sinner's success in believing or in doing something right first. It is the good news of a reconciliation which God has already accomplished. Christ is the propitiation, 1 John 2, verse 2 says, which means sacrifice. Christ is the sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, referring to the brethren or believers, 
but also for the sins of the whole world, it says. So there is a legal justification for all who live and trod this earth. So John is very positive. He does not say that provisionally, possibly, maybe, Christ can be the propitiation, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, if and not until the sinner does something first. Christ already is that propitiation, that sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And Paul agrees. Our Savior Jesus Christ, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10, hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For all men, he has brought life, and for those who believe, he has also brought the gift of immortality, which they receive at the second coming of Jesus. There's a, a, a centuries-old battle going on in uh, Christianity between Calvinism and Arminianism, which finds an extension among us today, and it focuses on Romans chapter 5 and verse 18. We'll, we'll look at that, Romans chapter 5 and verse 18. This text reads, As by the offense of one, Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness or the justification of one, meaning Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So Paul meant exactly what he said, but Calvinism says that the grace of justification must be effective. It is irresistible and therefore cannot be true for all men because many obviously will be lost. Christ died then for the Calvinists to justify only those who have been elected by God to be saved. But there was a gentleman by the name of James Arminius who could not swallow that, who said, you can't wash Paul's all men down the drain so easily. It's true that many are going to be lost. Therefore, this justification must be only provisional, a possibility, not effective or sure, but only available to all men. But what is available never becomes real for the sinner until he does something first. And generally speaking, historic Adventism has favored Arminianism because we do want to steer away from an easy-believism. Uh, you know, Calvinism is an easy-believism because if you believe that you've been elected to be saved... Uh, that really knocks the knees uh, out from under the law of God, doesn't it? And the Ten Commandments are really not that important. And we call that antinomianism. And so Calvinism is really, in the end, antinomianism. But Arminianism, wanting to steer away from that kind of easy believism, says, well, you must do something. You know, faith must demonstrate itself in obedience, and then one is justified by faith. It's a, but it's a legal justification. But Arminianism is missing the 1888 view. We have invited confusion as a result of this, and it has 
invited apathy and lukewarmness. Now, E.J. Wagoner's view of Romans 5.18 corrects the error in Arminianism. Um, in a Signs of the Times article, March 12, 1896, listen to this is what he says. There is no exception here. As the condemnation came upon all, so the justification comes upon all. Christ has tasted death for every man. He has given himself for all. Nay, he has given himself to every man. The free gift has come upon all. The fact that it is a free gift is evidence that there is no exception. If it came upon only those who have some special qualification, then it would not be a free gift. It is a fact, therefore, plainly stated in the Bible, that the gift of righteousness and life in Christ has come to every man on earth. Well, the reason why Ellen White rejoiced so in the message of justification by faith is that she saw how it was a breakthrough which solved the impasse between Calvinism and Arminianism. When Christ died, he accomplished something positive, something effective for all men. Our, our present physical life is a benefit of Jesus' sacrifice. It's not only available for all men, they already enjoy it. For all men, he has brought life to light. Thus, the whole world is in debt, not merely potentially or provisionally. He already tasted the second death for every man and suffered the imputation of all of our trespasses. Now, someone gave an illustration out of their own personal experience about how um, they uh, were visiting home and came across an old boyhood friend. Uh, now they had all grown up, and this uh, individual said that uh, they had a friend who was in debt and needed some money. Well, uh, this gentleman had saved up uh, some money and was intending to purchase a refrigerator but decided to forgo the purchase of the refrigerator in order to help his friend out, expecting that the money would be paid back. Loaned the money to his friend and uh, waited for a month or two, expecting to hear something from the friend, and no word ever came. And uh, finally, some time passed and still uh, hadn't heard from the friend about repaying this loan. And it wasn't until... Uh, a long distant time that uh, he, he, he looked at some of his bank statements, which he had left unopened in envelopes. He'd just been, I guess, didn't balance his checkbook. That's a no-no, right, Desrin? You should check, balance your checkbook and keep track of what's going on in your savings account. <laughs> but he finally opened his checking account uh, slips and discovered that way back long ago, this friend, not notifying him, had deposited to his account $300. So here he was questioning the faithfulness of his friend when all the time his friend had been faithful and had repaid the debt of $300. Well, our justification is something along that line. Even before you were ever born, God deposited something in your account in the bank that puts you in a positive position. So that uh, you don't start off in this life with a negative balance. <laughs> you start off with the righteousness of Christ 
and with his forgiveness and his justification. It's not something that you have to trigger during your life experience by saying, okay, Lord, I believe, now will you please justify me, and then you're justified by faith legally. No, God has already done that. He's deposited that to your account even before you were born. And now he wants you to appreciate that from your heart. Realize how much it costs the Son of God to buy that for you, and that, will, that love of God will enter your heart and move you to obey all of the commandments of God. This is the only springboard to true obedience. See, If it's the other way, if our salvation is dependent on our initiating it with our faith, then it's that way all the way through with sanctification too. And it all becomes a work strip and legalism and gets us mired down into lukewarmness. That's a pitiful state to be in. So Jesus bore the guilt, the burden of the guilt that should have killed us all. He's per he has purchased for all men the otherwise forfeited gift of life itself. And this is the justification of life that Paul is speaking about. All of us live because of the legal imputation of our sin upon Christ. And furthermore, he's delivered his, this grace to us. He has placed it in our hands, not merely offering it to us as something available if we do something first. Uh, here's from Steps to Christ, which says, In the matchless gift of his Son, God has encircled the whole world with an atmosphere of grace as real as the air which circulates around the globe. That's Sister White in, in Steps to Christ. Somehow I didn't get the page number written down there. But you, you're familiar with that little book, aren't you? So here it is, God's grace given to everyone on the order of like everyone is enjoying the same air to breathe, which God has created for our life and our sustenance. Likewise, God's grace, the imputation of, of his grace to this world, not imputing our sins and our trespasses to us because Jesus is our sin bearer, that is enjoyed by everyone around the world too. If the good news is so good, then we have to ask, well, why in the world will so many people be lost? Because they choose to resist and reject the justification that has already been given to them. And again, in Steps to Christ, page 68, it says, all who choose to breathe... Oh, this statement's on page 68, okay? So this is a continuation of it. All who choose to breathe this life-giving atmosphere will live and grow up to the stature of men and women in Christ Jesus. So you see, the grace is there already, when a person comes into life, and if they choose to breathe that grace, so to speak, she's using the metaphor of the air to breathe here, uh, if they don't hinder it, you see, they're going to grow to the stature of men and women in Christ. Well, that would be Christian character perfection, wouldn't it? Uh, if you, it's like what Jesus said, you know, in those words in, in John where he said, abide in me and I in you. Why did he say abide in me? Because everyone was already put into him when he took our humanity. And so he's saying, just stay right where you were put, you know? 
that's the invitation, to stay right there. And if you don't hinder it, and if you stay right put, the life of Christ will flow through you, and you will grow into the... You will grow like a branch that is attached to the vine, because that whole statement is in line with him talking about the vine and the branch, right? The branch cannot live without being attached to the, to the stock, to the vine. For those who believe Christ has brought immortality to light, as we've mentioned, it is those who don't believe who suffer condemnation. And, you know, not believing has to be a deliberate evil choice. For all men, that grace, Ellen White says, amount of blessings, page 97, is free as the rain and sunshine. And all owe everything to it, according to Christ's object lessons, page 250. Only those who resist it can be lost. And that is, that's what sin is, a constant resistance of that grace of Christ. Now, Wagner, in his book on Romans, he says this, According to Romans 12, verse 31, faith, a measure of faith is given to every man. God does this as a gift. God has given a measure of faith to every man. Faith is dealt to every man, even as Christ gave himself to every man. Do you ask what then can prevent every man from being saved? The answer is nothing except the fact that all men will not keep the faith. If all would keep all that God gives them, all would be saved. And then again, this is, there is not the slightest reason why every man that has ever lived should not be saved unto eternal life except that they would not have it. One of Ellen White's favorite illustrations of this truth is uh, President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation of, of 1863. When Lincoln signed the proclamation, every slave was legally free. But not until the slave heard the good news and believed it did he experience freedom. And it's so with Christ's sacrifice. At the cross, in Ministry of Healing, page 90, she says, With his own blood, he has signed the emancipation papers of the race. Uh, emancipation meaning our freedom from sin. See, And so being put into a right Position in terms of our bank account, if you want to say it that way. Legally, everybody has been put into a positive position as far as their bank account is concerned before they were even born. With his own blood, he has signed the emancipation papers of the race. So by recognizing this wonderful message, we place uh, justification by faith in its true light. It is effective, life-changing, transforming the believer into an obedient doer of all of the commandments of God. And Ellen White wholeheartedly agrees with that. In her view, our accepting Christ does not activate the heavenly machinery that has previously stood idle. God has already been at work in behalf of every sinner, and faith now responds to that ongoing work of grace. In Book One of Selected Messages, page 343, Ellen White says that Christ took in his grasp the world and restored the whole race of men to favor with God. Did you get that? Took in his grasp the world, restored the whole race of men to favor with God. 
Just exactly what we're talking about here. She has captured the 1888 message right there. Here again, Christ's Object Lessons, page 169. Christ made satisfaction for the guilt of the whole world. Christ made satisfaction for the guilt of the whole world. And then this is her words in Selected Messages, book 1, page 391. Faith is belief rooted in the heart. Faith is belief rooted in the heart. And so that's why, from Ellen White's own words, we can say that genuine faith is a heart appreciation of what it costs the Son of God to die for us upon the cross. Heart appreciation of the sacrifice that made made for all men and of the high priestly ministry in their behalf. Text, the Bible says, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and such faith works a radical change of mind and spirit and action. So justification by faith is more than a legal pronouncement. The current popular view is mired in confusion. It has not embraced the glorious breakthrough that the Lord in his great mercy has sent to us. The mind can only be freed from error, says Ellen White, when every thread is cut that binds it to fallacy. Uh, Manuscript releases, book 7, page 189. Well, you can't, you'll have to have the CD-ROM, Ellen White CD-ROM, to call that one up. But you can find it on the Ellen White estate uh, website, I'm sure. Dr. Arnold Wallenkamp, who was, uh, let's see, I think my father had him for a teacher at Union College. He supports the 1888 view in his book, which is entitled, What Every Seventh-day Adventist Should Know About Being Justified. And uh, he agrees with that. Now, when Ellen White speaks of conditions for obtaining or retaining justification, her meaning is clear. She speaks of justification by faith. Uh, Justified by faith is a title in Selected Messages, book 1, page 389 and forward. In its entirety, demonstrates her complete harmony with the 1888 idea. Our personal faith does not force Christ to die for us again. He already did that once for all. It is not necessary for each slave to apply individually to President Lincoln for freedom, at which time the president would again sign a legal document for him. The condition she speaks of is faith, which is a heart response to what Christ has already done for us. Persistent unbelief, which causes disobedience, frustrates the grace already given to all men. Now let's notice Ellen White's clear statement in 1889, which supports the truth of salvation by only one condition, which is faith. And we understand that faith, in its true Bible sense, is faith which works by love, agape. And uh, so here's her statement. She says, says, one, you cannot be accepted unless you repent. Then she asks, well, who leads us to repentance? Who is drawing us? She says, here we look at the cross of Calvary. What has made us look at it? Christ is drawing us. Angels of God are in this world at work, 
upon human minds, and the man is drawn to the one who uplifts him, and the one who uplifts him draws him to repentance. It is no work of his own. There is nothing that he can do that is of any value at all except to believe. And then she goes on. Well, the question will come up, how is it? Is it by conditions that we receive salvation? Here's her astonishing answer to that one. Never by conditions that we come to Christ. That's her words. And if we come to Christ, then what is the condition? The condition is that by living faith, we lay hold wholly and entirely upon the merits of the blood of a crucified and risen Savior. When we do that, then we work the works of righteousness, that being the fruit of justification by faith or sanctification. But when God is calling the sinner in our world and inviting him, there is no condition there. He draws by the invitation of Christ. And it is not, now you have got to respond in order to come to God. The sinner comes, and as he comes and views Christ elevated upon that cross of Calvary, which God impresses upon his mind, there is a love beyond anything that is imagined that he has taken hold of. So you see her point here is that the sinner's initial drawing, being drawn to Christ by the uplifted Calvary, there are no preconditions that one has to meet as a sinner, no walls that have to be broken down in order to come to Christ. And we should not, as teachers of righteousness by faith, say, well, you can't come to Jesus unless you have faith, unless you're praying, unless you're obeying all the commandments of God. There are no conditions, she's saying, to the sinner initially coming to Jesus. It's for them to see this great gift of justification of life. And then this creates God's faith in them. And the only condition then of justification by faith, which is ongoing living with Jesus is a continual growing in faith, a continual believing in him, that he lives his life in the believer, that he transforms them. When one, by their persistent unbelief, uh, refuses that grace, that demonstrates itself in a pattern of sin, which eventually leads to the self-condemnation of the individual. You see, that's why then the greatest sin that one can commit is the sin of unbelief. See? Because true faith, which God gives, is a, it's a measure of faith that's been given to every man, is a faith that's not namby-pamby or wishy-washy. True faith that is motivated by this gift always works by agape. It works, see? So Christ is drawing everyone that is not past the boundary. He's drawing him to him today. No matter how great that sinner is, he's drawing him or her. What is our problem? We do not sense the heart-humbling, heart-melting implications of the concepts that so fired Ellen White. Sometimes uh, she has articulated Arminian ideas, and there are some truth in Arminianism, 
But such statements do not deny that she also recognized in the 1888 message a greater truth that was the beginning of the light that was yet to lighten the earth with glory. The ultimate test that must come to us is whether we will accept this uh, glorious truth. We call it the fourth angel's message, which is to bring power to the third angel's message. The ancient Jews had to decide whether or not to accept the New Testament to complete their Old Testament. The Bible principle is that lesser truth never negates greater truth, but greater truth always defines lesser truth. So uh, I think you can see that it, we can never diminish the gospel by a true understanding of justification by life, uh, of, of life, because the more we see that it's, it's not an offer or a provision that Jesus has made, but he is the Savior of the world. And that the Bible uses the word gift for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believed, it doesn't say that he offered his son. Everywhere that you read these texts in Romans chapter 5 on justification, it uses the word gift probably five, half a dozen times there. It never says offer. And so we must be true to what the Bible says on this point. Some people let me say this, uh, believe that truth is exact and when it comes to the Sabbath, amen? Truth is exact when it comes to the fact that we are not immortal, but because of sin, we are mortals. We believe that as Seventh-day Adventists, don't we? So that if we should die, we will fall asleep as mortals. That should be an exact truth, shouldn't it? Uh, as Christians, we believe... Uh, in a sanctuary message, do we not? That's a non-negotiable. But when it comes to righteousness by faith, we become kind of wishy-washy, and we can say, well, you know, we don't need to be so exact on that because you can believe what you want to, and we can other people in the church can believe what you want to. If we're so exact about the Sabbath and the sanctuary and the state of the dead, shouldn't there be an exact understanding of how the Bible expresses righteousness by faith? And I would say yes because it makes all of the difference in the world to us in terms of understanding the love of God versus making faith into a work of legalism. Do you have any thoughts or questions uh, about what we've discussed this evening? Any response time here? <laughs> all right, Stephen. I just happened to go through and I was uh, looking at nominalism. I think that nominism, and that's how you pronounce it. And I came across an article uh, by Richard O'Fell. Are you familiar with him at all? I've heard of him. Oh. Yeah. He was talking, it was kind of similar to what you were talking about. I thought maybe I just happened to be doing a search. Oh, you're on the internet right now. <laughs> Okay, people bring their, their cell phones and their Bluetooths, and now they bring their Blackberries, and they go on the Internet in church. <laughs> but it's kind of good sometimes to be able to search on words that you pronounce, like nominalism. I think that's what you pronounce, and to figure out and understand what that means. Okay, someone help me. What? Antinomianism. Antinomianism. Oh, okay. 
So your question is, what does the word, what does the word antinomianism mean? All right, there are all kinds of gospels out there, and all of them, except for the true gospel, knock the knees out from under the law. It's only the true gospel that maintains the perpetuity of the law. And antinomianism means a gospel that is contrary to the law, against it, you know. You know and <laughs> Satan has invented antinomianism. He hates the law of God, doesn't he? He'd like to cancel it permanently. Why? Because the more that he can do that in the minds of Christians, the more he can postpone the second coming of Jesus indefinitely, right? The promise of the everlasting covenant is to do what with God's law? Write it in our hearts and in our minds. That's Christian character perfection. So if you have a gospel that's teaching contrary to the law, you can postpone the second coming of Jesus indefinitely. It's only the true gospel that upholds the law of God. Okay, maybe that helps to clarify the word antinomianism. Brian always has good thoughts, and whenever I make any kind of statements that need a little bit of shoring up, he helps me in Sabbath school class. Do you have any comment or thought to add to that, Brian? Not really. Just to put you on the spot? Okay. <laughs> All right, well, let's bow our heads and we'll have prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we can come apart and worship you. This is a, a study hour in which uh, we can learn together. It's good to know about our past. Uh, it's good to know the Bible because it is the past history of your dealings with your people down through the centuries. We know, need to know Bible history, and we need to know the history of our own Seventh-day Adventist movement. It's absolutely essential so that we can learn the gains as well as the losses in the past so that we do not fall into the same mistakes again. We thank you for all the positive truth, the positive good news that we can learn from the scriptures and the spirit of prophecy. This movement was raised up not to prepare a people to die, but to prepare a people to live and see Jesus come the second time. And being living witnesses for Jesus when he comes means to not hinder the faith that he's given to us and to let it work its loving principles of God's love in our, in our lives so that the character of Jesus is restored in us. We become partakers of divine nature. We know that God is very pessimistic about human nature of itself, that it can never perfect itself. But God believes in the gospel and the divine nature of Jesus implanted in each heart, that it can restore uh, those sacred principles of his law. And so we take heart that God has such faith in human beings by virtue of the grace and the gospel of our Savior. And uh, we ask that uh, we can be a part of that to honor Jesus, that he might receive his reward when he comes. In the Savior's name we pray. Amen.